Welcome back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Last week, Donald Trump refused to shake Angela Merkel's hand and then poked her about how Obama wiretapped her phone, too. Uh, as far as uh, wiretapping, I guess, by, you know, this past administration, at least we have something in common, perhaps. This is just particularly messed up because Obama's administration did have some activities in Germany, but not in Trump Tower. Like, Trump, stop trying to commiserate with something that's like an actual national discomfort. His joke about it was bizarre, but also their photo op earlier was what really made me cringe. Because in this photo op, you know, as you do when you're two world leaders, you shake hands. We're traditionally very tight allies. Yeah, Germany is a U.S. ally. And uh, Donald Trump not only refused to shake Angela Merkel's hand, but he also just refused to even look at in her general direction. Just utter disdain. It's so embarrassing. I wish we could he's, play he's a so photo on this podcast, but we can't. He's perpetually embarrassing. Perpetually. So later in the episode, we're going to be talking about our Dick of the Week, Neil Gorsuch, and his confirmation hearings with Karen O'Connor, a professor at American University and an expert on courts and women in politics. I'm not certain a court with two Trump appointees would even say women should get equal pay for equal work. But first, our week in weenies. All right. So our first weenie of the week is Kentucky's Governor Matt Bevin. Matt. A good friend, Matt. We're not friends. <laughs> Are you JK? Friends? JK, no. Uh, he has declared 2017 the year of the Bible. And so, oh. yeah. So my favorite book to read <laughs> growing up <laughs> in my very non-Christian household. So he has, true to the theme of the year, he has signed into law a religious freedom bill that would effectively allow— public schools, K through 12, and colleges to discriminate against LGBT people and other minority students. And it also allows teachers to teach the Bible as literature, as educational text in religion or history classes. This law ensures that kids can come in and wear like religious symbols. They can participate in religious activities. They can even pray at school. They can do Bible worship after hours at school. And administration is not allowed to say anything. The language of the bill states that all like all religions can do this, but it explicitly mentions Bible study and just lumps in every other world religion as like other things. It's crazy how all of these freedom of religion bills, quote unquote, freedom of religion bills are like We just want to be inclusive, but then the only religion that's mentioned is Christianity. Exactly. And you don't need to protect religious freedom. It's already protected by law. So (laughs) these kids kids already have the right to choose their own religion and express beliefs within certain boundaries. What they don't have a right to do that this law gives them a right to do is discriminate against other people who don't believe what they believe from joining into their groups. Um, So— Critics are worried that basically this would allow, say, a Christian student group to not let gay kids into their 
worshiping group or their club. You know, and I have like a quick little hot take. I feel like even though it's called a freedom of religion bill, it's not about freedom at all. It's about oppression. Joanna, <laughs> you're a brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, just saying. Our next weenie of the week are all the Republicans in the FBI hearings. So on Monday, FBI Director James Comey testified in front of the House Intelligence Committee for five and a half hours about Russia's influence on the election. Comey revealed that there was an ongoing investigation about that, which was big, big news. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Since July, <laughs> might I add, he's kept quiet about this yeah. while complaining about Hillary's damn emails 11 days before the election, and he was just sort of like, oh yeah, by the way, we're continuing this investigation, an announcement that did not need to be made. Think of his incredible <laughs> restraint to not say anything since July, when seemingly he was talking about every other freaking thing. Anyway, so in this hearing, it was kind of incredible to watch. The Democrats kept asking questions about the criminal investigation, what we knew, what these pieces of evidence could mean. Comey can't say that much because things are classified, and also he is politically savvy, blah, blah, blah. But— while the Democrats were trying to get into the grit about what exactly Russia did, who knew, what the consequences are, Republicans focused more on how it's illegal to leak classified information. So they're not worried about Russia's influence. They're worried about who told the press that Russia was involved, which I find to be <laughs> so crazy. So one particularly crazy one was Representative Trey Gowdy from South Carolina and he said to Comey, One thing you and I agree on is the felonious dissemination of class classified material most definitely is a crime. How old am I? I remember the day when people thought that Russia was our enemy and not, like, our our best friend who you allowed to read our own journal. Right. Terrified of communism, terrified of Putin, terrified of— That used to be the cool Republican the stance. The dictatorship, and now they're like, hey— Please exercise some tolerance for Russia— <laughs> And autocracy. So that brings us to our third weenie, Paul Manafort. So Paul Manafort was Trump's former campaign chairman, and he resigned in August. Like, quote-unquote resigned. Quote-unquote Publicly yeah, resigned. Publicly resigned. But so he's part of these investigations, and the Trump administration has said repeatedly that he never worked with Russia. He didn't have ties to Russia. He's not promoting a pro-Putin agenda. Well, that is not true. So on Wednesday, the AP reported that in 2005, um, so a little over 10 years ago, he was actually secretly working for a Russian billionaire with the goal of helping Putin and spreading a, like Putin's agenda and weakening anti-Russian opposition forces. So like not not only was he working with the Russian government, but he was working in to do, like, the number one thing that would undermine American influence and democracy. Like, he was deep into it is what it basically sounds like. 
Yeah, and this is just, I just want to say, this is a very recently added weenie. We woke up this morning. This podcast is being taped on Wednesday, so don't, like, think that we're stupid. Things probably just haven't happened yet by the time it gets released on Friday. But I woke up this morning. I rolled over. The first thing I saw was the Manafort thing. I screamed. I ran around the house naked. <laughs> that, that, isn't that just part of your morning ritual, Joanna? <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying I read the Manafort news first. Oh, okay. And then I did and then my you, yeah, exercise. And then you did your, your exercise. <laughs> and now let's do a really quick weenie cage match where we pit our weenies against each other to see who sucks the most. Okay. Who's, who's the biggest weenie? Oh, my God. I don't know. They're all weenies. They're all so bad. Paul Manafort is like a character in The Americans, like a literal character in a fake show. It's weird to pick out specifically on Paul Manafort because it's like so many people in the Trump campaign now have been revealed to have had ties with Russia. Like right. Paul Manafort, Jeff Sessions, like so many people <laughs> have been found that they did talk to pa- the government. I guess Paul Manafort wins because he's not just talking to the government. He's like working to yeah, promote. Yeah, he was working it, working to promote uh, Putin agenda. I feel like That's you can't true. really beat that. Yeah. Than working to promote Putin's agenda. <laughs> and what's like really bad though is just that he then worked on the campaign and lied about it. I I don't know though, but because between Manafort and Gowdy, maybe it's that I expect so little of every Trump administration official or every person in the Trump campaign that I'm almost more angry at the people who are there. Sub- to try to be holding them accountable and who are just failing to do so but the and don't even care. Yeah, but they're, yeah. I mean, they're supposed to be holding them accountable, but like in what world would they ever? They're so happy to have all the a Republican in office. I mean, they're bad. I'm not saying they're not bad. They're I'm just saying like they bad. haven't given me any reason to think that they would never do anything other than this. That's true. Okay, they're so, so I think that our cage match winner is Paul Manafort. So now on to our dick of the week. It's Judge Neil Gorsuch, who's currently in hearings to be the next Supreme Court justice and who probably will be. And by probably, I mean he will be. (laughs) So Neil Gorsuch has a last name that makes me cringe a little bit. It's just such, I don't know. There are a lot of ugly letters in that name, like letter combinations. It It doesn't sound right. Yeah, it sounds wrong. It sounds... Anyway, so Neil Gorsuch, he's he's 49 years old. Um, he's a conservative from Colorado, born in Denver. It's worth mentioning that he sort of always had a, a connection to D.C. politics and conservatism. His mother, Anne Gorsuch Burford, was the infamous head of the EPA under Reagan. She gutted it and tried to deregulate a bunch of environmental policies that were meant to protect, like, clean water and air and land. And she, not unlike other cabinet officials uh, that Trump has appointed, um, she, so she was forced to resign in 1983 after a congressional investigation um, into mismanagement of one of the programs she was overseeing. So anyway, that's, like— was his childhood claim to fame in a way. Totally. Um, so he went to Georgetown Prep in Maryland 
Okay. And can I just interject? I went to Georgetown Day School, and Georgetown Prep is in, like, the circle of schools that I knew about. And it is a very fancy school for boys, and everybody wears blazers, and they're largely blonde. It's just, like, I don't know if you can imagine what I'm trying to – what picture I'm trying to paint for you, but, like – it's a, I can. It's a school full of fancy rich boys. That sounds like having no consequences and being very strict and being prepared for their futures in government and finance. Ugh, that sounds like you a building I would not want to enter. I went to a dance there once. I didn't kiss anyone. <sighs> not that I would have wanted to. Sounds like you kind of wanted to. <laughs> Just saying. I think it's important to recount some of his education because there are a lot of stories here that tell us what kind of a man and thinker Gorsuch was, even at a young age. So there was a viral photo that went around a couple months ago of the yearbook from high school where Gorsuch lists himself as the founder and president of the Fascism Forever Club. Does forever include 2017 (laughs) and the Trump administration? Yeah, it's a really disturbing coincidence given the current political climate. But apparently the creation of the club was an inside joke hilarious joke, clearly. (laughs) Hilarious. And according to a former history, one of his former history teachers, his classmates called him a, quote, conservative fascist. So cute. So cute. That's so cute. I mean, if you're going to join, like, an inside joke, whatever, that's a fascism forever club, you have to make sure you don't join a fascist administration because, like, that's going to come back to bite you in the butt. You know, anyone considering inside jokes about fascism right now. That's just advice from us to you. Yeah. (laughs) So he went to Columbia and he quickly became a strong conservative voice on the very liberal campus. He actually started a publication, a conservative publication there called The Federalist Paper and also wrote conservative columns for the Columbia Spectator. Among some of his positions, he defended Ronald Reagan through his many scandals including the Iran-Contra scandal, the one in which the U.S. government sold arms to Iran and pushed to fund right-wing militants in Nicaragua despite an amendment that prohibited funding the Contras and despite an embargo on arms in Iran. So basically Gorsuch said that the president acted within the law, but Congress and a lot of the American public did not see it that way. And he also frequently criticized protesters. And in one case where a group of white students were beating up black students on campus while yelling racial slurs at them, he insulted people who were protesting that, just basically calling them like vigilantes. And in fact, some of the white students who were beating up the uh, black students were from his frat, Phi Delta Gamma, which was apparently a really crappy frat. They had a lot of accusations of date rape, racism, and sexism, and Gorsuch would repeatedly defend them. And again, he has some great yearbook photos, I guess, because again, he turned heads when in his yearbook page, he quoted Henry Kissinger and he said, his quote was, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. (laughs) Okay. If you're Trump, I bet you can do the unconstitutional so pretty quickly. These are like it doesn't even seem like a coincidence with these quotes. It seems like he was he was like friends with Donald Trump and they knew that one day he yeah, would be he, the Supreme he was Court. Preparing. Yeah, he was he back to the future to all, all of his yearbook stuff. <laughs> he later went to Harvard Law School 
and was actually in the same class as Barack Obama. But apparently, like, he was really well regarded by his classmates because he had a very, like, respectful and even keeled temperament from based on reporting. And then he went to Oxford, later clerked for two Supreme Court justices, eventually worked at the Department of Justice for a little bit. Um, And then in 2006, he's been on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Colorado. That's kind of what people have been focusing on during his hearings, um, because that's kind of all the evidence that we have to kind of predict what kind of Supreme Court justice he would be. So since he's only 49, he would be the youngest Supreme Court nominee in about 25 years, which means he has a long career on the court because he stayed there, honestly, forever. He's an originalist, so that's like Scully and Clarence Thomas. And originalists think that the Constitution should be interpreted in the way that it the founders intended for it to be interpreted. He's also a textualist, which is like to ignore past legislation and focus on exactly what's written. So he's really like, let's make things the way they were in 1700, or let's, or at least let's think about things the way they were in 17 in the 1700s. The good old days when women and people of color had no rights. Right. So the biggest concern from liberals about Gorsuch are his views on reproductive rights and religious freedom and discrimination. And through the hearings, we've been seeing that they're trying to paint a picture of him as being unfriendly to workers' rights and more friendly to the rights of corporations. And so there are a couple cases that we can look at to see how he's ruled. He's never ruled in a case about abortion, but he has ruled in several cases related to religious freedom and birth control. So when he was an appellate judge on the Tenth Circuit in Colorado, he got the case Hobby Lobby versus Sibelius in 2013, which I think we remember from when this went to the Supreme Court. But the Hobby Lobby sued to challenge the requirement in the Affordable Care Act that required that an employer's insurance covered birth control. They thought that since they're a Christian company that that was in opposition to their faith, and they didn't want to have to do that. So the Tenth Circuit Court ruled that federal law prohibited the requirement from applying to closely held corporations, and he agreed. And then the Supreme Court upheld that. So Gorsuch wrote in his opinion that religious freedom doesn't just apply to protect popular religious beliefs. It does perhaps its most important work in protecting unpopular religious beliefs, vindicating this nation's long-held aspiration to serve as a refuge for religious tolerance. And he also said, It is not for secular courts to rewrite the religious complaint of a faithful adherent or to decide whether a religious teaching about complicity imposes too much moral disapproval on those only indirectly assisting wrongful conduct. I mean, this is, again, what we were talking about with the religious freedom thing. Religious freedom so often only applies to Christian people right. and affects, like, the people who don't believe in Christianity who just want to get birth control. I mean, can you imagine some of these arguments being used to defend Islam? Right. They would never— That would never happen. —do that. They would be like, this is an oppressive religion. Also, can we brand re- rebrand feminism as a religion and maybe that way <laughs> Republicans will start to have to honor it <laughs> as in our freedoms? Yeah. <laughs> Another similar case was Little Sisters of the Poor Home for the Aged versus Burwell in 2015. So that was after the Hobby Lobby case, Little Sisters of the Poor also challenged the birth control mandate, but on different legal grounds. So the Affordable Care Act allows nonprofits to opt out, but 
the Little Sisters, which is a Catholic group, thought that it still burdened their religious exercise. Like filling out a form is creating a burden on them, basically. Like filling out a form. So in his dissenting opinion, he wrote, the opinion of the panel majority is clearly and gravely wrong on an issue that has little to do with contraception and a great deal to do with religious liberty. Obviously, a man would say it has little to do with contraception and a great deal to do with religious liberty. It's literally about contraception. This whole The whole thing is about contraception. It's like somebody <laughs> wants contraception. They're like, no, because of God. It's about contraception, not because of God. And then he also wrote, when a law demands that a person do something, the person considers sinful, and the penalty for refusal is a large financial penalty, then the law imposes a substantial burden on that person's free exercise of religion. What about the burden that is on women's ovaries? Yeah, like what about my burden of having to have a baby? And having to pay extra yeah. to not have one. Yeah. Yeah, what what about that burden? There's a burden. His thing is basically, I'm interpreting the law, I'm adherent to the Constitution, the way it was written, and maybe sometimes it doesn't matter if a human is harmed from it. So basically, Gorsuch has a really strong conservative record, but the seat that he's filling was never supposed to go to him. It's been vacant since last February when Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died. Um, He was 79 years old. Scalia, just like Gorsuch, was an originalist and a textualist. He was pretty polarizing. His decisions usually sided with conservative causes, but he was also really vocally anti-LGBT rights. And he once called the Voting Rights Act a, quote, racial entitlement. So he was not too uh, kind to minorities either. So as soon as the seat opened up, According to Article 3 in the U.S. Constitution, it's the president's job to appoint a judge to the Supreme Court. And then it's the Senate's job to provide, quote, advice and consent. So that's where we eventually get the confirmation hearings. In American history, every Supreme Court nominee who has eventually been approved, that has happened within 100 days of their nomination. When Obama nominated Merrick Garland, this was a federal judge who had a considerable amount of Republican approval back from his 1997 confirmation hearing. So he was pretty well-liked. He was like a moderate, kind of more in the center judge. And despite that, Republicans would not give him a hearing. They basically protested and just, just refused to do their job. And that's never happened in American history before. The Senate has never refused to not consider a president's Supreme Court nominee. But now they are upset with Democrats who oppose Neil Gorsuch saying that, well, Democrats should put aside political differences to elect him because that's just how this process is supposed to work and he's objectively a good judge. So he's been in confirmation hearings for a couple of days. More things will probably happen by the time this podcast comes out. But basically... Judge Gorsuch has managed to say very, very little, and he's done this on purpose. He seems incredibly practiced, like he knows not to reveal too much. But there's like a few things that we can point to. The The first thing is that through the campaign, Trump said he was going to appoint a justice who would overturn Roe v. Wade. That was his big promise. And then in the hearing, he was asked about that, whether or not Donald Trump asked him to, whether or not... That was something that he would consider. And Gorsuch said that he, if Trump had asked him to overturn Roe, he would have, quote, walked out of the room. One thing that Democrats, especially Senator Al Franken, 
did bring up, and they've been focusing a lot on this, is something called the case of the frozen trucker. Prachi, let me explain this to you. The case of the frozen trucker involved this one truck driver. His truck breaks down. It's in the middle of the winter on the side of the road. He's freezing. He calls his employer. He's like, what do I do with my truck? It's so cold. I'm on the side of the road. They're like, do not leave the truck. Stay with the truck. Help is on its way. And as the night goes on, he starts to feel symptoms of hypothermia. Like he starts to feel numb. And his abdomen, I think, starts to hurt or something. But he stays with the truck because his employer told him to. And then eventually he falls asleep. Then he's woken up when somebody calls him, and apparently the guy who he's talking to on the phone says that his speech is really slurred, and then he calls again, and they're like, don't leave the truck. But he makes the decision that he's not going to freeze to death, and he unhitches the trailer, leaves it on the side of the road, and drives away with the front part of the truck. Okay, so the truck driver was eventually fired for it and then sued his company. And then the judges ruled in favor of the truck driver, as anybody would. But Gorsuch said he wasn't protected. During the hearing, I think he said, the law said the man is protected and can't be fired if he refuses to operate an unsafe vehicle. But that's not what he did. He chose to operate, Gorsuch said. I think by any plain understanding, he operated the vehicle. And Al Franken questioned him about that during the confirmation hearing this week. Plain meaning rule has an exception. When using the plain meaning rule would create an absurd result, courts should depart from the plain meaning. It is absurd to say this company is in its rights to fire him because he made the choice of possibly dying from freezing to death or causing other people to die possibly by driving an unsafe vehicle. That's absurd. Now, I had a career in identifying absurdity. And I know it when I see it. And it makes me, you know, the it makes me question your judgment. He's clearly very studied. He's very calm. He didn't get outraged or emotional during this thing. We know very little about him except for the cases that he's judged. And the and that's the best indicator of how he's going to rule on the Supreme Court. And all these- the record is very conservative. It's very much against the rights of the individual in very pro-corporations. In all these classes I took in my graduate program, they said the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. That's all you can do.
And now joining us is Karen O'Connor, the Jonathan N. Helfat Distinguished Professor of Political Science at American University and the founder and former director of AU's Women and Politics Institute. Thank you so much for being here with us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So first of all, I just want to talk about the Neil Gorsuch hearings. He said basically nothing. Is that a trend? Why do these Supreme Court nominees say so little? Is it just him being cagey or is it everybody? Almost every issue that affects our daily lives is an issue that could come or is likely to come before the court. And if you have the proper judicial temperament, technically, you're not supposed to make up your mind until you hear both sides of a case and read the law that is associated with each of the arguments that are being made. And then you judicially make up your decision based on the law and the facts. Now, what Judge Gorsuch did was basically invoke the what we would call the Ginsburg principle and saying he could not make decisions or would not talk about issues that could come before the court. He did, however, have to answer questions about his legal writings and legal actions. He did a pretty good job of sidelining those questions and sticking to the fact that I'm here before you, you know my qualifications, and I'm going to be judicious, and I will not take a position on anything that may come before the court. Okay, so if a judge in this process doesn't offer up any of their positions, like what's the point of the process then? Is it just a formality? To some extent, this is a formality. What you are seeing is Democrats on the Judiciary Committee voicing their frustration that Judge Garland Merrick was never given an opportunity to testify before the committee and come up for a vote. To some extent, it plays really well back in their home districts. It has nothing to do with the judge that they are actually questioning right now. So there was grandstanding the first day. They began to do some questioning. It wasn't until 1915 that we ever had any nominee actually testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that was done in private. What we have had basically since the Clarence Thomas hearings is a very open space in which members of the Judiciary Committee ask questions, try to trip up people on their answers, do ask legitimate questions about people's judicial philosophies. But to some extent, this is a done deal. There is no way in hell that Judge Gorsuch is not going to be taking a seat on the United States Supreme Court. The Democrats simply do not have enough votes in the Senate to stop him. In this situation, you have a judge who's been nominated to replace what I would say was the most conservative justice that we've had on the court. So if you are replacing one conservative with another, it's not going to make all that much difference in the final tallies on things. Simply replacing Scalia with Gorsuch will only make for less nasty dissents. 
Justice Scalia was known for having the sharpest, snarkiest comments, not only in his written dissents, but usually or frequently taking the unusual move of reading a dissent from the bench that personally insulted one of the other justices on the court. What we know about Judge Gorsuch would not lead us to believe he will be a nasty conservative. And there, to me, is a big difference given it's a collegial court. A lot of the Democrats are bringing up the frozen trucker case as an example of his kind of disdain or maybe his his impulse to side with a corporation over an individual. Um, do you think that we can look to things like this to get a better sense of who he is or how he thinks about the law? Or is that a distraction? You are absolutely right. The focus has been on the frozen trucker. It is one case in a series of nearly 2,000 decisions or opinions that Justice Gorsuch has. And it is a horrible decision. It is one of those things that you're like, and he himself said, it was one that keeps you awake at night. Nevertheless, he did find the poor man would only have had a legal right to sue if basically he had frozen to death and his wife could have then sued the company. It conjures up absolutely horrible impressions of a poor man making the decision, do I freeze to death or do I detach the front of my truck to try and go and get help? And for most of us, this one is a complete no-brainer. You side against the guy freezing to death. However, Judge Gorsuch has bragged about in speeches and in his writings of being an originalist, which is what Justice Scalia also called himself. As an originalist, somehow these jurists believe that they can go back and know what the framers' intent were when they were writing the Constitution and then apply the Constitution as though it was 1789, which is in many people's minds, absolutely ridiculous. The genius of the U.S. Constitution has been that it has been interpreted to match the times. If we go back to 1789, Africans, Americans are slaves. Women are pretty much chattel, don't have the right to vote. We had never talked about anyone having being uh, a member of the LGBTQ community, the framers weren't thinking of that, nor were they thinking about campaign finance, nor were they thinking about political parties. So to somehow deign from what went on at the Constitutional Convention and try to apply it today, I think is very foolhardy. So Republicans did something unprecedented when they blocked Merrick Garland from becoming the nominee or from giving him a confirmation hearing. Do Democrats have any recourse now? Like, what what can they do? There is nothing that Democrats can do. They do not have the requisite number of votes to block his nomination. So it's a, list, a little disingenuous that they're 
bringing up, oh, maybe we can stop him through a nuclear option and make it go to having 60 votes in order to confirm him. But the procedures in place say if you go to a process that's going to request the 60 votes, because the Republicans have more than 50, they can vote to basically change the rules and confirm him on a vote of 51 votes. And we've got Mike Pence there if is necessary to break a tie vote. So Democrats can use this for sound clips for when they're running for office. But the bottom line is there's really nothing that the Democrats can do other than to, if I was them, I'd cut this short and I would use all of my money to be trying to raise money to flip the Senate in 2018, which is going to be a very difficult task. Because if the Democrats get control of the Senate, it will preclude, I believe, President Trump from successfully nominating possibly a second Supreme Court justice. And should, heaven forbid, something happen, particularly to Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, being two of the oldest justices on the court, uh, along with Justice Kennedy, those three seats are critical to women's rights as well as human rights. I'm not certain a court with two Trump appointees would even say women should get equal pay for equal work. So in his hearing... Gorsuch said there's no such thing as a Republican judge or a Democratic judge. There's just judges. It really doesn't seem like that's true. Is there really such a thing as just a nonpartisan justice or a humanist justice? It is extraordinarily rare for any person who arrives at the Supreme Court as a justice not to have had been involved in political activities. In the case of Judge Gorsuch, he worked in George Bush 43's White House. You don't get to work in the White House as a lawyer unless you are a Republican. You don't get to work in the Obama White House unless you're a Democrat. And if you even want to agree with him and say, oh, no, judges are Republicans or Democrats, you have to acknowledge that they all are, to some extent, political ideologues, and they either trend to the right or they trend to the left. So when he says there are no Republican senators or no Democratic senators, it sounds nice, but he's actually wrong. And you could probably even stretch it to say it's untruthful. Now it's time for our segment, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you about what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, just like have a fulfilling life and not be eaten to death by our own panic. Prachi, what are you doing? How are you handling them? 
I'm doing better than I was last week for anyone who was listening last week. I was was a mess. I was very flustered. The few things that I'm doing. Oh, I, so I've been, I've been working out pretty consistently and I did my first real pull-up the other day. And so now I can do, I can do like one and a half and I want, I'm, I just last night I went on Amazon and I bought uh, like one of those pull home bar? pull-up bars because I want to like Mama do more. Um, yeah, I'm really cool, <laughs> everyone. Um, so I'm very excited about that. But it gives me like it just like pushes me to keep going. Like it's I don't know, it's exciting. Um, and the other thing that I've been doing is I decided to become a real adult and start like really actually budget like creating a financial budget and like getting my shit together financially and it's really embarrassing because I was a finance major in college and I have I'm not financially literate (laughs) so I like am googling all this very basic stuff (laughs) about like what is a balance sheet and and how do I make one (laughs) that's so good um yeah but yeah it feels good. It feels like, oh, and I cleaned my apartment. So I'm like decluttering for this week because it was such a mess last week. That's really good. Thank you. Mine, on Thursday, I was with a personal trainer that I see, and I was doing renegade bros, which are the thing where you're in a plank, but you have weights in your hands and you pull up like that. Oh, wow. And so it's like pull up. Yeah. And my shoulder popped. <gasps> No. It was and now I've been too scared to do any kind of like Is intense it still hurt? No, it doesn't it never it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. hurt. It just was very like scary sensation yeah. when it happened. And my trainer was like, Okay, relax. Everything's fine. But I feel like <laughs> did squeamish. She ex- did she explain why that happened? Yeah, she just I mean it wasn't even a full thing. She just said I was putting a lot of pressure and like the rotator is still getting stronger and stuff. Oh, uh, okay. It was fine. Be careful. It was fine, but I feel very squeamish, but I also feel proud that I've yeah, been working out got, hard like, enough to have a workout injury. Yeah, workout it's not even injury. an injury. <laughs> it was just a, it was just me. Being, well, you don't want a real being injury. Spooked. Yeah, I don't want an actual injury. Right. I just want maybe the hit. I don't even want this. Whatever. I'm just saying I have it. The other thing is that I bought. I just moved to an, a new neighborhood, and they have a very fancy grocery store there. And they have this microgreens sampler, and I, I bought it. I don't even know what that means, microgreens a microgreens sampler. No, so they're – it's you know what a microgreen is? It's like a tiny little green. They have different kinds. What's like a tiny – just like kale? No, that's big. That's Think big? Think of how big oh. a kale leaf is. It's like – I don't know. Big and small are relative terms um, when I'm describing greens. I don't know. Like broccoli? Is that small? No. No. <laughs> What the hell is this, a microgreen? Example, what, like, example. Clo- like clovers? You can't even eat That's clovers. That's <laughs> Clovers? No, I think you're thinking of cloves. Oh, right. A clo- oh, like a, <laughs> yeah, like a clover. Like, a clo- like the size of a clover. Like the size, it looks like a bunch of little clovers. What okay. are those? Though? They're just like a beautiful, a beautiful little arrangement of tiny little nutritious okay. greens. I don't understand this. But it, okay. okay, it's I not just, that hard to understand. No, I don't understand why <laughs> it's a thing. I don't know. Anyway, I bought this sampler of little tiny baby greens, mm-hmm. and I put them on all my shit this week. That's nice. And it makes everything look so fancy. <laughs> I will say it was like me taking pride in the food that I make at home instead of like shoveling human shit into my mouth and then falling asleep on my floor. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I'm, yeah, I'm still in the latter category, <laughs> which is maybe reflected in my laughing at 
Microgreens. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly, I'm clearly a less evolved human being. <laughs> if you don't know what a microgreen is. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks. Thank you so much to Professor Karen O'Connor. Please rate and review us on iTunes so that other people can find the podcast. I really mean it. It's very important. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. This episode featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. 